Well, it's a big weekend here at St. George's. Last night we had our second annual picking party, lots of great music, lots of great fellowship. And today we kick off all of our Christian ed classes for the fall. I'm going to be talking about those during the announcements. But in the sermon this morning, I want us to spend a little bit of time with our reading from 1 Timothy. Uh, and in particular, I want to talk about a theme that emerges in our passage, and that is the theme of forgiveness, God's forgiveness of us. This is what we read uh, today from 1 Timothy. Paul writes, The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but for that very reason I received mercy. You know, if you had asked Paul to describe himself, one of the first words he would have used, if not the first word, would be the word forgiven. Paul, when he looked at his life, uh, when he thought about who he was, his identity, he thought of himself as a forgiven man. And that is true for us as well. We are called as Christians to think of ourselves and believe, believe in God's forgiveness. And it's important to remember that this is a belief that we have, belief in God's forgiveness. It's, it's a matter of faith, just like everything else in the creeds, just like with our belief in the divinity of Jesus or our belief in the resurrection of the dead, God's forgiveness is something that we believe in. And what I mean by that is it's not something that we can demonstrate or prove. We don't get a, you know, a statement in the mail that shows all our sins have been wiped clean. No, it is something that we believe in. And so again this morning, I want to just reflect on this belief that Paul testifies to this morning. What does it mean when we say that we believe in the forgiveness of our sins from God? Rowan Williams, he was the previous Archbishop of Canterbury, one of the great Christian thinkers of our age. A number of years ago, he wrote a sermon on the forgiveness of sins. I want to share with you this morning some of the ideas that he talks about in that sermon. First thing he says is he says that when we think about God's forgiveness of us, we tend to make one of two mistakes. Two mistakes, he says, we can make. First mistake is this. He says that we can tend to think that God's forgiveness means forgetting. We've all heard that before. Forgive and forget. It's as if God's forgiveness means that we are wiped completely clean, like the past never happened. Right? Forgive and forget. The past is wiped away in God's eyes. And yet we know, we know that in our own life, that is not how forgiveness works. As most of you know, I have, I have three children. And when my children were younger, one of our favorite things to do uh, was to wrestle at night. Uh, In the house we lived in at that time, in our TV room, it had a carpeted floor. So I would get down on the ground, and we would have these intense wrestling matches. And 
there's only five years between our youngest and our oldest. So there were a few years there where it was three on one. And, you know, the, the problem when you're wrestling three other individuals, even if their combined weight is under 100 pounds, is you always have an exposed flank, right? You can be, you can be taking care of the kid, neutralizing this threat. You've got two more kids come at you from the other direction. And I don't want to brag, but I got pretty good at this. I mean, I, I figured out their little tactics, developed kind of a sixth sense of how they were going to come at me. So most nights we would wrestle, it would be great, but occasionally, occasionally I would make a mistake. And I'd be focused on a child up here, and one of the kids would launch a sneak attack, which generally uh, was launching off the couch, knee in the air, and that knee would end up in my back, and I would go down, right? And by the way, that was, it was always my son who launched those sneak attacks. So I'd go down, knee in the back, and um, of course, I'd forgive him. I wasn't mad. I mean, all is fair in love and war. But the next morning, when I woke up, my back hurt. I forgave him, but it didn't take the pain away. You know, when someone hurts us in our life, it doesn't just magically disappear, that hurt, when we forgive. I mean, maybe if it's a small matter, someone cuts you off in traffic, you can, you can forget about it. But real hurt, real betrayal, and we know this, real betrayal, you carry the wounds from this many times for years to come, right? The, the past is with us whether we like it or not. And more than this, there is something actually wrong, something morally wrong about forgetting. Today is September 11th, and in our prayers, we're going to pray for those who died 21 years ago. Uh, Trisha and I lost a friend on that day, worked for uh, Cantor Fitzgerald in Tower One. And in fact, this summer, my family and I, we went to New York and went to the 9-11 memorial for the first time. And it was powerful uh, going in, it, seeing all the pictures of those who had died on that day. And in fact, you can go to consoles and, and pull up each person. So we pulled up our friend. Lots of photos, notes. You could hear his family describing him. He was not forgotten. None of those on that day were forgotten. When you visit Auschwitz, I don't know how many have visited Auschwitz, but at Auschwitz, there's a monument to the Jews killed there. And it has this inscription on it. It says, O earth, cover not their blood. Cover not their blood, O earth. There are things that should never, never be forgotten. 9-11, Auschwitz, and if forgiveness means forgetting, then forgiving is a trivial and offensive idea, just as that monument suggests. So forgiveness is not, it is not forgetting. Now the second mistake that Rowan Williams says that we tend to make is, is we can tend to think about God's forgiveness as suspended judgment. 
as if God said, I know who you are, and I know what you did, but in my mercy, I am just going to suspend judgment. You, you deserve punishment, but I'm going to excuse you from that punishment and judgment. Now, I do think this is closer to the, the biblical notion of forgiveness than, than forgetting is, but it's still not enough. It's missing something. But a forgiveness that says to another person, I know exactly what you have done, but I'm going to ignore it, that can actually be a terrible judgment. It's almost as saying, you don't matter enough to me for me to get involved with this. It'd be like God saying, I know what you did, but you don't matter enough to me for me to do anything about it. I'm just going to let it slide. So God's forgiveness, it's not forgetting, and it's not just suspended judgment. So if that's not forgiveness, what, what does forgiveness consist of? Tricia and I, we've been married uh, for over 20 years. Next, next month is 21 years for us. And I know many of you have been married longer than that. But uh, over these 20 years, it's been long enough for us to witness in some of the relationships of our friends, friends who were married at the same time as us, to witness experiences of betrayal, of unfaithfulness, and then, of course, to see all the pain that happens after this. And one of the things that I've learned just, just from watching these experiences is that if the marriage is going to have a future, if the marriage is going to be able to move through and past this betrayal. It's not because the betrayed spouse wakes up one morning and says, you know, let's just, let's just forget about what happened. Let's just, let's just kind of wipe the past away and pretend that never occurred. No, that doesn't, doesn't work. No, rather, if there is going to be a future for the marriage, the betrayed spouse has to say something like this. They have to say, you have, you have hurt me, and you have wounded me, maybe more than I even knew that I could be wounded. But that doesn't mean it's all over. And that's because my love for you is not overwhelmed by this betrayal. And despite the in incredible hurt you have done to me, the incredible hurt, I still love you. That's forgiveness. That's real forgiveness. It recognizes the seriousness of what's occurred, but even in the face of this, it finds the strength to keep loving. And of course, we know that the relationship is never the same, it, it's changed forever. But, but what's been amazing to watch with my friends who have gone through this, and not everyone makes it through a betrayal, but for those who have and for those who have forgiven, what you find is the relationship actually becomes stronger. And it's stronger because it's a relationship that doesn't have illusions. 
It's rooted in a love that can look at the other person and fully see their weaknesses and their failures and still say, I love you. Again, that's forgiveness. It's a forgiveness that changes things and gives hope. You see, that, that is what God's forgiveness is like. The promise given to us is that God's love for us is inexhaustible. Inexhaustible. And that is a, that is a profound claim to make. That God can always survive the hurt that we do to Him. That whenever we turn to Him in sorrow after doing some injury to Him, to His creation, to His creatures, whatever we have done, the promise is that love is still there. It's like a door that's always open. Only thing that can, can keep us out is our refusal to ask and trust in this love. Now again, I said this is a, a, a profound claim and promise to make, that God's love is inexhaustible. So why do we believe this as Christians? Well, we believe it because of the cross of Jesus. Rowan Williams, in that sermon, he, he says this, and this is up on the screen. He says, Jesus crucified is God crucified, so we believe. Jesus is the total and final embodiment in history of God's loving mercy. And so this cross is a unique, terrible, extreme act of violence, a summary of all sin. And then he says this, the cross represents the human rejection of love, and not even that can destroy God. With the wounds of the cross still disfiguring his body, he returns out of hell to his disciples and wishes them peace. It's one of the most powerful uh, images in the scriptures um, there's an icon up on the screen. This is actually an icon of, of Thomas. So this is Jesus' second appearance to the disciples after uh, his crucifixion and resurrection. But, but just think about this. You know, here are the disciples uh, who have abandoned Jesus. They have betrayed him, leading to his death and crucifixion. And so how does Jesus respond well, he comes back from the dead with the wounds still in his, his hands, in his body. And what does he say to them? The, the first words that he says to them. He says, peace be with you. Peace. I want there to be peace between us. I, I, I forgive you. I love you. I think I would have said something different, right? You crucify God in your life, and what does God do? God comes back from the dead, wounds in his hand, and he says to you, peace be with you. 
I want relationship with you. I love you. I forgive you. That's our hope, right? The infinite resource of God's love that nothing can overcome it. Williams has this line, and it's such a powerful line, I put it on the screen. He says, our hope is in a God who is forever wounded, but forever loving. God is forever wounded, but forever loving. You know, it's said rather boldly that the saints in heaven rejoice over their sins. And the saints in heaven rejoice over their, their sins, it's said, because it's, it's their sins that have helped them understand and learn and experience the endless endurance of God's love. And in fact, we see that in our passage from Paul today. He says this. He's talking of himself, his experience of his own sin. He says, For that very reason I received mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, he's saying the foremost sinner, so that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying, basically there, if God can forgive me, God can forgive anybody. And of course, this promise, the promise of God's inexhaustible love, it doesn't, it doesn't answer all our questions. I mean, how can God forgive those who killed so many on 9-11? How can God forgive those who exterminated 1.1 million Jews at Auschwitz? How? Rowan Williams, he writes this, um, and I'll, I'll conclude with this quote. He says, How can God forgive the tyrant and the murderer? It is hard to see how some people can be forgiven or even let themselves be forgiven. But the truth is, this is not our business to work out. All that we can be sure of is that whatever the deficiency, when the human capacity to love has dried up, when our capacity to love has been killed by pain, there is still at the heart of everything a love that cannot be killed by pain. This is a warning against regarding any human being as unforgivable. We do not know how some situations can issue in forgiveness, and we have to bear their dreadfulness without pious evasion. But it would be worse to deny the possibility of grace. That possibility is our only hope, and it is the only clue to what grace can mean in our relations with each other. It is the refusal to set limits to our love. And so now we come in the service to the creed. And in the creed, we're going to proclaim our faith. At the very end, what we're going to do is we are going to proclaim that we believe in the forgiveness of sin. So as we proclaim that with our lips, may we truly believe it in our hearts. Amen.